Next weekend is Labor Day, and it will mark 23 years since the launch of WCW Monday Nitro, the kickoff to a period of professional wrestling that saw WCW soar to record revenues in 1998 while being out of business by 2001. The questions often asked by observers are why and how, and one man set out to answer those questions and many more in his new book, Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. A real pleasure to have Guy Evans joining us here at Post Wrestling tonight. Guy, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, John. It's a pleasure to be here, too. Well, I've had a chance to read the book. Uh, I've shared my thoughts, and this was quite an undertaking on your part. And I want to go back to the process of this project at Square One and kind of your relationship to WCW before this book uh, became a reality for you. Sure. Well, I'll try to be as succinct as possible. But uh, just to give it a little bit of background um, in terms of my relationship, I suppose, with with WCW and professional wrestling in general, um, I suppose we, we should go back really to the to the mid to late 90s boom, where, like many other young people, obviously, at the time, um, I followed wrestling very closely. And, and in fact, um, kept up with with both WCW and the WWF. And to be quite honest with you, John, I think once WCW went away, that was more or less the extent of my interest in wrestling. And, and obviously, if you look at the numbers and, and speak to people, even you know anecdotally, I think you'll find that there were many people in that boat. Um, you know, I stuck around through the the ill-fated invasion storyline, of course, in two thousand and one, uh, and and also the the NWO actually being um, brought into the WWF in two thousand and two. And it was somewhere in that time frame, I want to say, sort of mid two thousand and two, that I just sort of checked out. And uh, I think a lot of people sort of reached that point. Um, in terms of their fandom, let's say, not only in regards to wrestling, but but in many other, uh, in regards to many other forms of entertainment as well. And bizarrely enough, it wasn't until sort of late 2009 where, one way or another, um, I started to hear rumblings that um, TNA were essentially going to uh, reignite the, the the Monday Night Wars in in some form or fashion, and of course we we all know how that ended up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it it wasn't until uh, then, so a period of of seven or eight years or so, um, that I really started to think about wrestling again. I started to think about WCW, and I remembered just how closely um, I followed it and how much um, of a part it was of my life growing up. And I thought, isn't this interesting that a lot of the the principles, a lot of the the key characters on and off screen who are involved um, in 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 the success are now essentially uh, it seems like and and obviously uh, once you you got into 2010 this is actually what ended up happening you know I thought it seems like they're they're essentially trying to to replicate that um, obviously under vastly different conditions and at a very different time as well um, and so. I think around that time, that's when I really started to dig into some of the other accounts that have been produced on WCW, the various books and, and documentaries and so on. Um, and I found them all to be very informative and, and entertaining and valuable um, and, and took away a, a lot from all of them. Um, but I did sort of feel like there were quite a few questions that had gone unanswered. Um, I felt like there were a lot of pieces to the story uh, that hadn't sort of been filled in. Um, and instinctively I sort of knew there was probably 
a deeper or richer story to tell and at the very least a different story to tell. So to make a very long story short, not to be long winded with the answer, but um, after going through that process, I think around sort of 2013, 2014, I came to the realization, well, you know, if no one else is is going to um, approach this story in the way that I think would be um, interesting or different, uh, then I'm going to give it a shot. And here we are now, you know, three, four years later. And what results is a, a 590 page book, which I think is getting a lot of attention. And, and um, a lot of that, I think, is due to the amount of new information that's that's present in the book. Yeah. And I mean, it's just such an in-depth account of this business and speaking to a lot of people, to your point, that uh, have not spoken really publicly about WCW, going to uh, executives at Turner, uh, being able to, to contact people that were major decision makers uh, beyond the, the usual suspects that you hear associated with WCW. Was there that one person that kind of got the ball rolling for you that were was able mm. to point you in the right direction? Because, I mean, you amass over 120 interviews in this. How does this start off as just, you know, this monumental task on your hands and trying to navigate a very complex story? Well, this might surprise you, John, but I'll, I'll be totally honest. When I embarked on this project, I actually had uh, zero leads or contacts or relationships with anyone who worked at WCW or anyone who worked for the wider corporate entity, which which was uh, Turner Broadcasting. Um, I really started from scratch, and I'm not exactly sure why, but um, a, a gentleman by the name of Rob Garner, who was one of the VPs with WCW, actually ended up being the first interview uh, for the book way back in January of uh, 2015. Wow. Um, but, but contrary to popular belief that there wasn't really one person who was sort of um, connecting the dots for me and, and, and introducing a lot of people to me. Now, that's not to say that I didn't have help along the way. Um, and I think, you know, in the acknowledgements section of the book, I try to highlight that. Um, certainly, Neil Pruitt was, um, and if people don't know Neil, he's, he's probably best uh, known for being the voice of the NWO and being a, a feature producer with WCW for many years. Certainly, he was a huge support um, in terms of being encouraging about the project. And in fact, towards the very end of the process, he did introduce me to two or three very key people. Um, but I have to say, you know, at the risk of sounding... Um, uh, at the, the risk of sounding like, uh, I, you know, again, I, I want to highlight the fact that a lot of people helped, but the large majority of um, the interviewees, I did actually have to go and do the uh, the legwork and, and go and find these people. When when you're sitting down and speaking with a lot of these executives and people that were in major power positions, did you kind of feel into the process that a book like this, you needed that time removed from WCW and its demise that you have the benefit of over a decade of people that can be retrospective and look maybe a bit more honestly when they're removed from, from this company and look at it with, you know, both a critical eye, but one also with the benefit of all that hindsight. Yeah, I think that's a very insightful question on your part, John, because I think that's where writing this book, I've actually benefited quite a lot um, in terms of the timing of it, because obviously, even if you were to go back 
five, six, seven, eight years, um, a lot of the people that I were able that I was able to get in, in touch with for contractual reasons, they wouldn't have been approachable at that particular time. Um, if you were to go back sort of 10, 12 years, you know, a number of the, the key people were actually working, you know, with the WWE. Um, so I think from that perspective, I, I think you're right on the money there. And also, as you sort of alluded to there, I think enough time has gone by that perhaps some wounds have healed uh, on the parts of certain people. I think enough time has gone by that maybe people can can put everything in its, its proper perspective. Um, that was something that was pretty common in terms of what I heard on the other end of the phone when I contacted people is, you know, a, a lot of people saying, you know what, it, it does feel like time for someone to um, write the story informed by you know, people who were actually there and, and kind of let that drive the, the narrative, so to speak. Um, and I think what, what I found mostly across the board is people were tremendously forthcoming. And it just so happens that a lot of them maybe have reached a point in their life where, um, you know, they, they feel comfortable to talk about some things that maybe, as I said, 5, 10, 15 years ago, they, they wouldn't have been. Uh, tell me a bit about your interactions with Eric Bischoff, who is someone that obviously uh, plays a major, major role in this book. And, and he's someone that I think is someone that over the years he has both been praised and been maligned. And I'm sure some mm. f- people feel fairly, some feel unfairly. But he was someone in this book that I think that I think he comes across very much like he he is given his criticism, but also. Uh, praise at different times he is there are some uh, aspects he brings up where there's direct contradictions to by other follow-up interviews that you've done it, it was interesting to watch his his history and and seeing the perspective of so many others around him that were in that corporate environment specifically yeah and i and i have to say um specifically in relation to to Eric Bischoff, I do have to, and and again, I put this in the acknowledgements, I do have to underscore the fact that really when it came to his participation in the book, and the same could be said for other people as well, but perhaps particularly for him, um, you have to really think about what incentive uh, does someone like, you know, an Eric Bischoff have in terms of of opening up about a lot of things that perhaps he feels have been um, you know portrayed to varying degrees of, of accuracy in the past, obviously, I was a name reaching out to him that he hadn 't come across before, so very easily he could have sort of dismissed the the um, the whole idea to interview him from the beginning, um, but I was obviously very pleased when I had the chance to speak with him for what I think amassed or, or, or amounted to, I should say, um, about four or five hours over the course of a couple of, of separate days. And I was able to, to ask him about a lot of things that, um, you know, he's touched on before, but also a lot of things that, that he hasn't talked about, um, which really helped the book. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been interesting to hear people's perception, I suppose, on how major characters such as Eric Bischoff come across in this book. Um, I think, again, at the risk of, uh, of being repetitive, you know, I should emphasize that by virtue of the fact that you've got over 120 people um, providing their input into this story, um, you know, the, the large majority, if not all of the, the information um, that you receive on a character like him is coming from those people themselves. Um, so, of course, you're going to have some people who uh, regard what he did in a very positive way. Other people may sort of lay a lot of the blame for why things did collapse at his feet. Um, and, and that's something I've been pleased with in terms of the reaction to the book. People have 
highlighted the fact that you do get multiple perspectives and you do get different sides. Um, and then I'm very much a proponent of letting the readers make up their own minds at that point, because, you know, who cares what I think? I, I wasn't there. I didn't work for the company. So my job was to collate um, all of this information, all of these memories, all of these anecdotes, put them together. And then however people sort of want to interpret that is uh, is their prerogative at that point. Yeah. Did, did that ever be uh, an obstacle for you in doing all this? The fact that you did follow world championship wrestling, you're not coming into this blind to what this product was uh, to remove your own opinion, to remove any kind of editorialization, because I thought that was certainly a strength of the book. You kind of just let the subject speak for themselves in this. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, um, anyone who's producing any kind of creative work, you know, it, it's you have to be honest with yourself and you have to um, consciously be aware of that. Um, but I think, you know, Neil and I were talking about this uh, recently afterwards, after he had the chance to, to read the book, Neil Pruitt. Um, you know, one of the things he said to me was, it seems like the fact that you were an outsider, this is him talking to me now, he said, you know, the, the fact that you were an outsider has probably enabled you to um, look at everything that happened in a little bit more of a, a fair and impartial way than perhaps obviously someone who was heavily involved with the company because, you know, in a business like professional wrestling and i don't have to tell you john because you follow it so closely and you have for many years um you know obviously you're talking about something that's that's non-stop that's going 12 months a year year after year you know these people are spending a tremendous amount of time with each other and of course that breeds um that breeds sometimes a lot of interpersonal conflict um you know sometimes uh, you know people can't be or as objective about things because of their relationships with people as is true really in, in in any walk of life but i think particularly so um in something like wrestling just because of the the intensity of it um so yeah i i think you know you, you can't kid yourself Every, everyone's human everyone has biases everyone has um you know you know sort of a, a way that they see the world and the way that they see certain events but that is something that i try to do from the start and, and again i'd like to think that's something that separates um, this book from from similar works. I should also mention as well, again, you know, the risk of going on and on. One of the things that I really benefited from, John, was being able to cross-reference some of the claims um, that people made with some company uh, records and materials that I was able to get access to, which have essentially been under lock and key for the best part of 20 years. So, for example, if someone was going to make a claim to me about WCW's financial performance, um, I was able to pick up uh, WCW's financial statement and actually examine whether or not that that claim was was accurate. So I think whenever you have um, sort of objective data to point to, that in and of itself is inherently going to eliminate some of your um, biases and 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 sort of some of those ways that you could distort things. Um, but but that that has been really the most rewarding. Um, item of praise, let's say, that I've taken away from all of the reactions to the book so far. And I think this has come from, you know, even Eric Bischoff. This has come from people like yourself, John, who were kind enough to to read the book and, and really review it so thoroughly. Is people have said, you know, this this seems like a very, very fair um, account of, of what happened, informed by people who were actually there. And uh, that's something that's, that's really gratifying to hear because that's something uh, that I was trying to achieve. When you were able to to get that kind of uh, internal information from the company, were there any 
any any things that immediately uh, jumped out at you as uh, I, I would classify as you know stunning in once you actually got to see the nuts and bolts of it, and also just the the overall uh, accounting of this company, which I mean you, mm-hmm. you kind of make it clear in the book, like it's all over the place in, right. in terms of trying to just just be able to get a black and white picture of the financial health of this company. Sure. Yeah, I think you know obviously. Um, all of us, whether you know we have a background in, in business or not, we're trained to look at a company's financial performance in terms of examining the the revenues and expenses, and then making uh, you know a judgment based on that. And um, you know, obviously, if you're running a, an independent wrestling organization, for example, and I obviously don't have any experience doing that, but I think I'm I'm fairly accurate in saying this. You know, you can you can pretty much very easily make a determination in terms of whether the events that you're running were financially successful. Uh, well, obviously, WCW being part of uh, Turner Broadcasting, um, you know that that sort of created a, a much more complicated. Um, uh, complicated situation in terms of actually um, assessing to any degree of accuracy how well the company was doing. And there's a chapter in the book, um, it's chapter nine, it's called An Age-Old Problem. It was probably the most challenging chapter that I had to write because I really did have to go on a little bit of a crash course in accounting and speak to um, the one of the controllers at TBS and some of the accountants who worked with WCW specifically and really get an idea of uh, of how this thing worked. And to go back to your question, I think that was one of, if not the most shocking thing um, that I that I uncovered. Just the the actual actual extent of the disorganization and just how nonsensical uh, the accounting methodology seemed to be within TBS. Um, you know, the, the fact that, and, and again, I don't, I don't want to sort of belabor the point here, but I'll just give one sort of quick example in case people are, are wondering um, what exactly I'm talking about. Um, the fact that a lot of it in regards to WCW was based on allocations um, and, and, and forecasting um Based on, so I'll give an example here, just so I don't tongue tie myself. Um, in the book, you'll you'll see some perspectives from accountants who will talk about the fact that when they were doing the budget, uh, sort of year to year, in regards to WCW, let's say they were looking at pay per views specifically. Well, what they would tend to do is they would look at how pay per views had performed historically, and then they would sort of budget in. Um, the, the the idea that that pay per view would do anywhere between three to five percent better the following year. So let's say, for example, that Starcade um, attracted six hundred thousand buys on pay per view. Well, the 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 Turner financial people would look at this and say, okay, let let's assume then that Starcade is going to do uh, six hundred thirty thousand buys the following year. Um, now, obviously, that in and of itself, for people who know anything about wrestling. Um, would seem to be a problematic way of 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 going about budgeting year to year. Uh, just the fact that you're going to have inevitably a lot of fluctuation. Well, the real problem was if you had an event that exploded in popularity, and I know I'm not citing the the beacon of WCW pay per views here, but let's let's use as an example when Jay Leno uh, got involved at Road Wild '98. Right. Um, if you look at how Road Wild 98 performed 
in comparison to Road Wild 97, you'll see that there was quite a jump year to year by virtue, you know, I would argue, um, of the fact that Jay Leno was involved. Well, why does this matter? It matters because the, the turn of financial people would now look at this and say, well, now we have a new baseline for what Road Wild should be doing in 1999. So rather than um, uh, assumption in terms of, of how that pay-per-view is going to perform, um, now actually that, that could that, that could, could be increased uh, quite a lot because of the fact that for whatever reason, um, a particular pay-per-view did extremely well in one particular year. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take a genius to think about what the real world implications of that kind of accounting um, could be on the people who are actually working within WCW, because now if they don't meet that, that new baseline, all of a sudden, you know, Road Wild is looked at as uh, a complete failure, whereas in fact, if you would have gone back sort of two or three years earlier, um, that wouldn't have been the case. So it's things like that, which I think I really grew to appreciate. And hopefully that makes sense for people there. And I really lay it out in in much more detail than that in the book. Um, But certainly, you know, whenever you come across, um, you know, how WCW was performing in regards to its profitability, it's certainly um, not as simple as... um, uh, as the, as the usual way that you would determine the success of a business, that's for sure. So, just to kind of look at that kind of year to year analysis, they do an enormous number one year. Was that suddenly that would there be actual physical spending into that budget? Was it that they would have new kind of uh, markers that they would have to achieve now based on that five percent increase? Like, where was the the financial shortfall that would come out of, say, a really successful road wild year over year. Yeah, so let, let's let's say that uh, again. I'll just throw out sort of hypothetical numbers here. Let's say you have a pay per view that typically was attracting three hundred thousand buys. Okay, and and maybe there's a little bit of fluctuation. Maybe it's you know over the course of a few years, three hundred to three hundred five to three hundred ten to three hundred twenty, and then all of a sudden maybe there's a celebrity involved, or there's a huge main event, or. The, the marketing and advertising clicks with people and all of a sudden now, um, you know, that pay-per-view jumps to, to uh, 400,000. So now, you know, the expectation could be that WCW is going to achieve somewhere in the region and likely uh, just, just over 400,000 400, pay-per-views that following year. Right. So now if uh, the company didn't actually hit that marker, as you kind of alluded to there, um, actually – the company would be looked at as it effectively running at a loss because they hadn't generated the revenue that the Turner financial people um, had assumed they were going to generate. So, you know, again, the, the, the implications of that would be, well, you know, we're X million you know, dollars off the pace uh, of where we, where we were the previous year. Um, so again, you know, people can kind of speculate, in terms of was this an intentional ploy on the part of uh, the the Turner financial people? Um, you know, there's a lot of background in the book in terms of a lot of prominent voices who obviously were not supportive of wrestling being on the airwaves to begin with. Or was this just a fundamental misunderstanding of how wrestling works that, um, you know, you are going to get certain years where an event does extremely well and other years where it doesn't. Um, so, so again, if it didn't, if the, if the company was not able to hit that marker, to hit that, um, that target, then um, the way that it would be looked at by people who know nothing about wrestling is, well, you know, these guys are, you know, way off the pace of where they were a year ago. And that must mean that the company's heading in the wrong direction. 
So obviously, such a pivotal time for WCW is the enormous business in 1998, and then in 1999, that's where we see a, a sharp decline in in business, in the on screen product, and from what you just laid out, it's almost compounded by the fact you're coming off such high highs in 1998. Mm. And then mm. business is plummeting. I mean, you you outlined the television viewership dropping 33%. You have live gates that are just going way down at this point. By middle of 1999, where's this company in your estimation? And is this a, a salvageable venture in your opinion as we get into the Vince Russo introduction in the fall of 1999, because there was some enormous damage done in those, those nine months that preceded Vince Russo's introduction. Well, I'll just kind of throw that question back to you there, John. So, so when you ask if it was a salvageable operation, are you sort of thinking more of the creative aspect or are you sort of thinking about other ways that the company could be evaluated, if that makes sense? Yeah, I'm looking at it from mainly a, a financial just being able to get back to being financially mm-hmm. solvent and into a company that is it's that is profitable by the end of the year. Uh, I think creatively, I think that's certainly uh, a much easier uh, ship to write than it is uh, the financial picture, which as you're outlining it, they were almost handicapped with, with other things beyond their control when not only are you just trying to get to profitability, but you've also got the these markers coming off a record-setting year in 1998. Mm. Well, it's an interesting question. I, I suppose, you know, and, and I don't really go into this in the book because as we've talked about, um, I think whenever you're doing sort of any nonfiction work, you want to try to remove the subjectivity as much as possible. But I'm of the opinion, I, I think by sort of, mid 99 um you know i'm not so sure that those highs of of 97 and 98 in terms of just pure revenue that the company was generating i'm not so sure it could be replicated again uh at least not in the near future because i think one thing which is important to remember um is just how reliant wcw was on ad sales um and the the sort of implication or the 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 consequence of that um is is the is the fact that you know back then i think you really did need um what you know people like brad siegel in the book um would call a big concept you need you needed something that you could sell to advertisers and the the nwo storyline was an example of that that's something that um if you were hesitant about spending money on wrestling and you were sitting um, in a boardroom and someone was was pitching you on WCW Monday Nitro, you know, that's something that you could get your head around. You know, the idea that there are these invading wrestlers who predominantly were part of uh, the the, the competi- competition on the other network and they're trying to take over WCW and so on. That's something that to a, a, a non-follower of wrestling would sort of make you stand up and say, well, maybe this is something that, that we should get involved in. Now, obviously, today it's a very different landscape. Um, you know, if you look at WWE today, for example, they don't need to develop those kind of um, big concepts, let's say. You know, the, the media landscape just as a whole has become so fragmented that really you can sort of develop a certain following and then just continually market to those people. And I think the WWE network would probably, probably be an example of that. Um, so again, it's, it's, we're speaking about hypotheticals here. So it's, it's, it's difficult to fully answer your question, but I'm, I'm of the belief that, you know, I don't think 
in terms of the the revenue that was generated in in uh, in ninety seven ninety eight and just the overall um, sort of interest and momentum that WCW had, I'm I'm not sure that could have been turned around. Um, you know, in 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 sort of late ninety nine two thousand two thousand and one, um, maybe if WCW had stuck around longer, that that wouldn't have been the case. Um, but as I outline in the book, as long as WCW was part of Turner Broadcasting and didn't have um, a full degree of control over its affairs. Um, I think the collapse was inevitable, and, and I think once you read the book, you'll you'll probably be of a similar opinion. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, you know, you, utilizing the word inevitable right in the title of the book. That you know, when when Turner purchased Jim Crockett Promotions, the idea was that this is going to be unstoppable. You've got this major media company now that can back this this professional wrestling organization and it should have all the tools all the advantages to not just compete but thrive against the world wrestling federation and and yet it was you know you see in this book that it was uh as much a handicap at times of being part of this this gigantic organization that it seemed they it seemed that the vast majority just didn't know what what was wcw in the overall portfolio that was uh, that was Turner Sports, Turner Entertainment. Absolutely. I think part of it, um, having spoken to so many people who were involved at that level, part of it was perhaps a lack of understanding or a lack of appreciation of uh, what wrestling entailed and how vast uh, the reach of wrestling could be. Um, and I think a lot of it, and, and I actually got this from quite a few people I spoke to on an off-the-record basis, a lot of it was just pure vitriol. I was actually quite taken aback. I remember speaking to someone who was uh, a member of the, the Turner Executive Committee, um, who's not quoted in the book, but did provide a lot of useful background information. And I was really struck after speaking to him just all these years later, the level of, of hatred um, that he had for wrestling as a whole. And he seemed to be very, um, very upset all these years later that WCW was ever um, so prominently featured on, on the Turner networks. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, on, on paper, it would seem like, um, perhaps the company had all of the advantages in the world, and certainly it had a ton of advantages, obviously. Um, but uh, it's also important to note that um, internally at the corporate level, its its supporters and its backers were few and far between. And that's a, a consistent theme that you see throughout the book, just this dis- dysfunctional relationship between WCW and its parent company, and then just how dysfunctional Turner Broadcasting itself was um, even before – um, you know the the Time Warner situation, and then leading up to and, and after the merger with uh, with AOL, also. Um, so you know it, it was just sort of if you look at the Nitro era, regardless of what was happening on screen um, at that at that corporate level, you know it just seemed like just constant chaos and, and a lack of understanding or a lack of appreciation for what um, wrestling was and, and what it could be as part of uh, their broadcasting empire. You know, in, in all the interviews you did, and this kind of focuses more on the people that were directly involved in the day-to-day and the product that was put on the screen, did you sense a, a, a general pattern, a general opinion of kind of where the where the responsibility lay? Because you see a lot of the focus that it becomes on on Turner, on the, the executives that were overseeing this entire thing. And while I feel that that is certainly a big portion of this, it's also – it's not these executives that ended up 
turning these gates in half over six months or fans that mm. were suddenly not buying pay-per-views anymore or were not showing up to house shows. And I think that's, that's a responsibility that sometimes gets, gets skirted off, that this, was this, uh, this thing was a disaster from the start. There was nothing we could have done to it. And yet, as someone like yourself that was watching this week to week, you saw that product in 1999 and 2000, and it did erode what was a, a very healthy fan base at a time when professional wrestling was was thriving in North America. You're absolutely right, and I, I don't think you know anyone would make the argument uh, to you, John, that you know if you look at WCW's programming, and again, just speaking subjectively here, if you if you were to look at it. Arguably in the, the latter half of 98, um, and certainly once you get into 1999, uh, late 99, 2000, you know, especially, um, you know, we could probably spend, we could probably, we could probably produce a podcast series. And, and in fact, from what I understand, there was one on, on your, uh, on your network, you yes. know, all about, all about the, uh, the, the creative missteps in 2000. So obviously no one would make the argument to you that the WCW was, was producing programming, uh, that was anywhere near, uh, what it was at, at its peak or, or even in comparison to many other great eras in, in wrestling as well. Um, so, you know, I think, I, I think both things can be true. I think, you know, it, it, it obviously was a very dysfunctional relationship from the beginning. WCW was, uh, was the beneficiary of certain advantages in terms of being part of Turner. It was also hampered quite significantly um, because of that. Um, and, and also, you know, from a, from a creative standpoint, obviously the company didn't do itself any favors. Um, and, and as, as you talked about there, you just have to look at the decline in ratings, the d- decline in, in, uh, in, in live attendance and so on. You know, if you really look at that key sort of March, April 99 timeframe, you'll see that's when the, you know, what hit the fan in terms of things really taking a nosedive, um, and, you know, from a creative standpoint, you had so many characters uh, changing their dispositions, going from, from you know, baby faces to heels and back and forth seemingly for, for no reason. You had a lot of uh, storylines that, that weren't followed through uh, to, their, to their sort of uh, logical endpoint. Obviously, um, for a variety of reasons, you know, you had the, the big storyline at the beginning of the year or the big story development at the beginning of the year with the NWO uh, reforming at the beginning of 99. And for a variety of reasons, you know, the, the main sort of protagonist um, in that story, Goldberg, uh, never seemed to get his comeuppance uh, against that group. And you could make the argument maybe that after two or three months or four months went by, you know, a lot of people said, well, this is just going to be the same old thing and it's going to be, you know, the, the same guys in the, in the main event um, slots and so on. Um, so I certainly think, you know, if, if the company was able to um, follow up on that, that huge idea um, with something fresh, with something innovative um, in 1999, maybe that would have hastened um, the downfall. But, you know, again, WCW didn't exist in a vacuum. And that's something I think, you know, people... I think people instinctively know that and perhaps explicitly know that, but certainly after the book, you'll come to understand that, um, that there were a lot of things impinging on uh, the company's success um, or lack thereof or, or influencing it, um, which, which absolutely didn't help. But, but I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, those last couple of years, I mean, goodness gracious, some of the things that happened, um, you know, it, it sort of beggars belief, actually, when you go back and look at some of those shows. 
this was also a period of wrestling that you were creating so many new fans, both with the WWF and WCW at that time. And I, I think you look no further than than today where this is a period that is so heavily romanticized and you delved into this and I was I really enjoyed reading the portions about uh, kind of the insight into the video game that they had to deal with THQ with World Tour and then the follow up with Revenge that I look at that game as that was a great entryway for so mm. many people beyond just the 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 Monday night television offering and Thursday nights mm. I thought that video game is one that was very well remembered and I mean, you cite the unit sold like this was a monster that they had on their hands when they put out uh, the follow up with revenge. It's really interesting that you mentioned that, John, because, you know, prior to interviewing anyone, I, I probably did about six or seven months of uh, doing some research and, and really sort of mapping out exactly what I wanted to look into and, and talk about with this book. And, you know, that that uh, particular partnership that WCW had with with THQ is something that I kept going back to. Just being aware of the fact that, you know, if you speak to, I would say, a sizable number of people who watch back then, they would actually describe the impact of the game in very similar terms to how you described it, um, in terms of it being maybe a, a, an entry point um, that, that sort of sparked their interest in, in WCW or wrestling as a whole, or something that certainly um, you know supported their interest while they, they watched the week-to-week shows. And what was really interesting was speaking to some people who worked at THQ during that time and, and just how... Um, how much they credit WCW along with some, some other factors as well um, as being a big part of the growth um, in terms of THQ as a company and, and how upset they were when um, things went awry at the end. And, and, and obviously uh, it, it worked out well for, for THQ landing the, uh, the, the WWF license. Um, but, uh, but it was really interesting speaking to those, um, those, those video game people who, you know, some of them, uh, you know, we're very much aware that this was was a huge deal at the time. Maybe haven't thought about professional wrestling much since then, and just uh, just remembered very fondly the impact that um, I think, especially that WCW NWO Revenge had on on their company. You're absolutely right; it was a a huge deal at the time. Uh, just a few more uh, topics here. This has been uh, fantastic chatting with you, uh, Guy. You sure. had this one line in this when you were talking about the the history <laughs> of Vince Russo when he was the editor of his school newspaper at Indiana State <laughs> University, that one of his pieces led to the basketball team retaliating physically against one Vince Russo. Do you have any more to this story? Because I had never heard this prior to reading it in your book. And to me, it was, it was the line that just jumps out and hits you in the face. A young Vince Russo upsetting the basketball team. Trust me, John, if I had more on that, I would have uh, articulated that fully in the book. Um, that's actually something that, believe it or not, if you go back and uh, and look at some of Vince Russo's early writings when he first got into the professional wrestling business, and of course, as, as you know, and a lot of people know, you know, for a, for a short time, he was actually uh, producing a, a newsletter. Uh, that's something that he referenced in, in one of his early writings and, and didn't actually elaborate on it too much. Um, so, you know, that, that's something that, that, that comes from the horse's mouth, so to speak, um, whether or not at this stage he would be able to, to provide any more sort of insight on that. I don't know, but, um, it's interesting that that, that stood out to you. I, I, uh, I, I think those, you know, details, um, like that, that you can sort of sprinkle in, um, 
when you're trying to to tell the background of 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 a character um or or uh sort of highlighting something about someone i think is what really makes a book like this and and uh, i'm glad that stood out for you now i know you mentioned the fact that you tried to go to the ends of the earth to get in contact with with ted turner beyond him Mm. was there that one uh white whale of an interview that either uh, you were not able to secure or one that took uh you going above and beyond to secure that interview? Well, I think for people who haven't read the book, um, you know, I should note that the Jamie Kellner, who is obviously a figure that um, has been talked about a lot over the years, um, uh, you know, you, you've got comments from Jamie Kellner in the book. Um, and that, I think that's something that took a lot of effort and a lot of time um, and, and took a lot of persistence, uh, quite frankly, to, to make that happen. Um, you know, Stuart Snyder, um, who was the WWF president and, you know, has been sort of alleged to to have had um, a nefarious role in regards to the eventual sale to the WWF. You know, I was able to interview him and get his comments in the book. Um, Harvey Schiller, um, obviously, you know, we, we talked about Eric Bischoff. These were some, you know, very important names that, um, you know, I had to work quite hard to, to to get them on the record and talk about this. But to go back to your question, in terms of someone that um, sort of fell by the wayside, one thing that was very disappointing, and this is probably the biggest mistake that I made throughout this entire process, but I think it's a defensible one, um, is failing to get Brad Siegel um, on the record um, commenting on on um, on his relationship with WCW. I I did have a phone conversation with him um, at, at sort of I would say the fairly early stages of the project, um, and I know actually for a fact through someone who I would regard as being very reliable that um, as of a couple of months ago he was a- actually asking um, about the the status of the project and he's been very much aware that it's been going on, but I spoke to him on the phone and. It was it was it was pretty cordial, uh, and then I sort of dropped on him the fact that I felt that because so much had been written, um, you know, not only about this time period in WCW but also his role specifically in the whole thing, I felt that it was quite important um, to actually get him on the record and and um, make sure that I wasn't ideally speaking to him on background only. And at that stage, and, and you know, he was very polite about it. But at that say, stage, he said, "Well, I'm going to have to, you know, speak to, to to my attorneys about this, and and maybe I can draft up a sort of a one-page uh, document that you can sign just to to make sure that you know this is only going to be used for this particular project and, and nothing else." And I was fully willing to to sign off on all of that because, of course, I wasn't going to use the the interview for anything else. Um, but uh, you know, I, I sort of let a week or two go by, and then I was I was informed actually by his uh, his assistant um, that he was no longer interested in in participating in the book, and um, you know I think that that probably was a mistake on my part. I think you know I probably could have had um, a beneficial conversation with him uh, just on background and and maybe added to the story in some way. Um, you know, but I, I did. I did feel because he has been talked about so much that it was important to get him on the record, um, and it seemed like you know that 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 sort of cost me that particular interview. So that would be that would be the one that got away. Some people may listen to that story and say, "Well, it sounds like you know 
quite honestly, he wasn't interested in being interviewed to begin with. But, um, you know, it was a fairly lengthy process just to get him on the phone and, and get to that point where we had had a discussion about it. So that was that was a bit disappointing. Brad Legal Siegel. <laughs> there you go. I like him. Congratulations once again, Guy, on this book. I can't recommend this book enough. Uh, if you've enjoyed this interview, we really just scratched the surface. Like There is so much detail to this book that uh, I highly recommend it. Once again, it is Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. And uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, tonight, Guy. It was really great to, uh, to pick your brain about this uh, project that um, was a huge undertaking on your part. And I'm glad that so many people now are getting a chance to, uh, to read the book and, and go through this in- incredible history of WCW. Well, thanks, John. I'll just say in, in signing off um, that people can go to uh, WCWNitrobook.com uh, if you'd like to order the book, or you can go on Amazon. Uh, as John mentioned there, it's Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of WCW. Uh, and I just want to thank you, John, for, for taking the time, as I said before, to to check out the book and obviously put together that very detailed review. And as I said to you off the air before we began, it's really nice to see this success that you're having along with way uh since uh, the uh, the live audio wrestling and the, the fight network uh, situation happened which uh you know I, I i was aware of uh last year and i was glad to see that you guys uh very much landed on your feet so that's that's really nice to see uh, well i very much appreciate it guy and uh, once again thanks so much uh for all your time tonight uh chatting thoroughly enjoyed the book and uh we wish you all the best uh with the uh the continued promotion of the book thank you john i appreciate it